Greetings, Raised Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Dan Allenby, principal and founder of the Annual Giving Network and a fellow future country music star. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thanks, Brent. Good to be here. If you're seeing the video episode, you are seeing Dan's guitar in the background. So we were just riffing on music and our uh, shared interest there and also heard that Dan just got to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park uh, this week or last week whenever he played and sounds like it was quite a show. With my with my son, my 14-year-old son, who got me into the Beatles, which I still think is the coolest thing going. To, to, to learn the Beatles from your own son is pretty cool. Well, I've been looking forward to hosting you for a while, Dan, getting to know you better. Our paths have crossed periodically over the years in the advancement circuit. Um, and I am sure a lot of our listeners know you or are familiar with your work at the Annual Giving Network, but I doubt very many of them know a lot about your personal story and journey uh, into higher education. And so what I've been asking our guests is really just to start with a bit of your personal background in the context of your higher ed journey. So take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that guy and what led him to James Madison University? Junior year of high school. Okay, so we'll go yeah. back a bit. Uh, Williamsburg, Virginia is where I grew up. Um, my father uh, spent his whole career in advancement and development, which, you know, I have to say when I was back in high school, so we're going back to the late eighties, uh, there weren't a lot of people that could say that their dad was working in advancement. Um, but that's all I ever knew. He worked, uh, he got his first job out of college at the university of Delaware, where he went to school. And, uh, and then he got a job at uh, college of William and Mary. He was uh, the head of advancement, the vice president of advancement there. Um, and so that's all I ever knew. And then, I and how, how old were you when he started there? So we moved in, gosh, 86. So I would have been 13. So that's the same age as my oldest right now. So I, you know, we moved to Virginia, Williamsburg, Virginia, which is, if you've ever been there, it's like, it's a great place to visit. It's an even better place to grow up. Um, and I developed a love of history there. And, uh, what is one piece of Williamsburg history that everybody should know? but maybe either forgot or doesn't? Uh, well, it, the College of William & Mary is where Thomas Jefferson went to college. Everybody, well, those of us from Virginia like to talk about Jefferson and his founding of the University of Virginia, which is a different university up in Charlottesville, which is where my family lives now. Um, but he actually went to school at the College of William & Mary. I just watched the John Adams series on HBO. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, but I did not pick that up. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. No, there's a lot of history. A lot of a lot of great people went to William and Mary, and it's you know that's not the only show in town. We got Bush Gardens, Water Country, uh, Colonial Williamsburg. So a little of that. Right. And so when you're 13 and your dad works in advancement, right? As we all grow up, we have varying levels of understanding of what our parents actually do. Like we might know the job or the job title. And then at some point you actually learn what goes into the work. Did you have a strong appreciation in high school, for example, for the actual process of fundraising that your dad was working on? Or was it sort of just, that's my dad's thing? Yeah, well, uh, that's a good question. You know, he would, to me, and he wouldn't talk about the, the mechanics of it, but he, was always 
visiting people, um, it, the relationships that he had to people and with people. And, you know, he, he would talk about them as friendships. I mean, to me, these weren't, and I think my father, who's still around and still talks this way, uh, you know, he didn't talk about them as prospects. You know, they talked about him as friends. And uh, yeah, he was, him and my mother spent a lot of time, you know, out traveling, going to parties and receptions and things like that. So that, that was, but I, I didn't get it. I didn't understand the mechanics of it. I certainly never thought about working in it as a field, but I went off to college and went to James Madison University uh, in Western Virginia, studied history. Um, when I graduated, like you, Brent, I thought I want to be a country musician. And uh, that was, that was, I don't know if it was a country musician actually at the time, it was a musician. The Dave Matthews band was really big in the fraternity circuit back in the mid nineties. So if I was being totally honest, that was really wrapped up in the Dave Matthews band and how cool that was um, getting to see them play. I remember the first time I saw Dave Matthews, it was, I think I paid three bucks to go see him at a show. He played acoustic and there was maybe like 15 people in the whole room. Um, so when I graduated, I needed a job. And uh, my father said, hey, if, now like, if you want to work in advancement, if you want to work in development, annual, annual giving is a great place to get your start. Um, and I, that, I remember him saying that um, he wasn't going to get me a job, but he, he gave me some names, some contacts and some friends that worked at other universities. And I remember it was the summer of 1996, blazing hot. He let me use his Toyota Avalon and I drove up and down the East Coast just going and meeting with anybody who would let me meet with them. And eventually a woman named Linda Nelson, who had just started as the v VP for advancement at American University. Um, they had just gone through a big presidential change. Linda was new at her job. There was, I think this is a, probably at the time, fully staffed would have been about 35 people working in advancement. And there was maybe two people on staff. So she had a lot of hiring to do. And she said, um, look, you look smart enough. So I fooled her. And she said, uh, you know, I don't have anybody in the annual fund. Uh, I got two jobs. You can have a, a job running the direct mail program or you can have a job running the phone-a-thon program. I didn't have a clue what either of them did, but the phone-a-thon one sounded like, you know, oh, there'd be students involved and people. So I said, I'll take that one. And that was it. That was my first job. I did that for four years. Um, I loved it. I loved working with students. I, I remember sort of leaning on the student supervisors because they knew what they were doing. I didn't know anything. It taught me a lot about management and the importance of just letting other people do what they're good at. Um, I took another job about four years later. Dan, can I, can I ask in that first, in that first role, I mean, there are, I mean, so many people have cut their teeth in the phone-a-thon yeah. uh, and there are just inevitably like just stories, right? When you have that much volume and, students and alumni and personalities were there any moments during that initial role that just stand out as either being like really cool success stories or just crash and burn stories or i mean it's been a while but like when you think about some of those early experiences where it went from i'm going to drive up and down the coast in an avalon looking for something to hey i like this like this is this is cool work like just curious what maybe some of the reflections are from the time in American. I mean, things that stand out when I think back to that time, I mean, maybe there's a couple, one, it, it's gotta be walking down to the, the, uh, 
director of advancement services office because at that time and there was no there was no uh, automated phonathons. We were printing you know the car the cards uh, every night every morning after going to the advancement services director's office, pick up a big stack of cards. I'd segment just literally at my desk, just putting things in different stacks. We put the lie bunts here, we put the side bunts there, um, and but at the same time, when I think back to that, it was just it was so real. I mean, we weren't, you know, we weren't caught up in technology. It was just, all right, I'm going to call Bob Smith. And we were focusing on really making sure that the students could have a good call with Bob Smith. It's funny, one student who I hadn't thought about in 20 years until a couple, until about two years ago. Um, and I guess I can say her name. And you'll understand why in a second, but one of our supervisors and she was super shy. And I remember it was the one that I remember having to work with a lot um painfully shy and uh i think through the phonathon she really came out of her shell and her name was cecilia vega and i'd never thought about her again for 20 years and then i was watching abc news and she's an anchor on abc news and i just think like you know when people really put hard work into something you know, here, here was a young woman who she was probably a sophomore in college, painfully shy, you know, couldn't, eat, you know, wouldn't, wasn't even seemingly comfortable in a conversation. And then 20 years later, she's an anchor on a major network. Um, so that stands out too. Well, I will try to get Cecilia Vega on as a guest and see if we can get her reflections on the American University uh, phonathon. I will. That is really, really cool story. Um, this was 1996 going to 2000, which was sort of the peak internet.com boom. And so I am curious, on one hand, you're doing live bunts and side bunts on print cards, but the world is transforming at a ridiculous rate outside of those walls. Did you start to feel that at all? Or when you think about when you, you know, first started thinking about or experiencing any of that. I mean, I know there was probably a period at that time when the thought of even emailing donors would have been kind of a crazy, you know, can you really email a donor? Um, yeah. I've heard stories like that, but you know, what's your reflection of the intersection of technology and advancement during that, that period? I mean, when I think about, if we're talking about the late nineties and I think about that period, um, there wasn't a lot integrated into our work at that time. I mean, um, so you're experiencing the changes personally. You're getting your first email address personally. You're, you know, I remember my surfing wife, the web. Yeah, the woman who eventually became my wife uh, found. I got an, you know, I that was the only email account I had at American University. I was sitting at my desk, and all of a sudden, an email pops up from this girl who I had known you know, years before, and then we sort of fell apart, but she was able to track me down at American University and emailed me. And, uh, you know, 20, 20 years later, we have four kids and we're married. But, you know, when I think about the actual advancement work, I mean, I, if you ask about technology, the first thing that comes to mind was the caller ID, because that's when things, you go back before caller ID, you know, and it was phonophones, they were cash cows. I mean, you know, it was, pardon, I want to use the term fish in a barrel, but we were calling people and if you could just get them to pick up the phone, they were glad to hear from the institution. There wasn't a lot of competition out there in terms of other nonprofits. You know, they're the ones I would say, and I'm speaking very generally, non-higher ed nonprofit institutions 
they're the ones that really leverage technology to get really nimble. Before that, you know, higher ed was kind of the only game in town. We were running phonathon programs. We were calling alumni. Phonathons were making, we were measuring the return on investment of those programs. Five, 10, $20, you know, for every dollar you'd invest, you get that amount of money back. All of a sudden caller ID comes onto the scene and the game kind of changed. You know, these people, you used to call people at dinner time and they'd always answer. Now you're calling people, they know it's you and they won't answer. So all of a sudden we started to see contact rates really decline. And then mobile, you know, I, uh, uh, that, that became, to me, that was a real game changer when things started. Uh, what was his name? Mark Andresian? Am I getting yeah. that name? Was that the net? Uh, mm-hmm. NetSuite. Yes. Uh, no, uh, uh, Netscape. Netscape. Yeah. Yeah, Netscape. And I think he's still a big player. You would know him. Yeah. But uh, I remember reading once where he said the big game changer is going to be mobile. Like that's that's what's good. You know, it, it, the internet and sort of what happened between mid 90s and 2000. It's got to pale in comparison to what mobile does to the world. And I don't know, looking back, you can tell me if you agree or not. But, you know, that would I agree. So then I all agree. of a sudden, and I'm just speaking from a, a calling perspective, which, you know, I don't want to limit the conversation here to just, you know, phonathons, but that was that, you know, caller ID was a big change. Then we started, you know, the, the emergence of mobile. I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, a lot of talk about it being illegal to telemarket people on their cell phone numbers. I hadn't thought about this in years, but that was, so then here we were running these annual funds, running calling programs, trying to be very sensitive. It's okay to call people at home or at the office, but if you call them on your mobile phone, you know, you're going to get slapped with a big fine. I got to be honest with you. I don't know if that was actually ever true. I never actually heard of anybody getting fined. Um, and then, you know, so it was sort of like you were being cautious and like letting, you know, not bothering people. Well, with mobile phone. Look, I, I think the reason it's, it's highly relevant to be talking about this isn't about landlines versus caller ID, although those trends are still playing out. But we're in a spot right now in 2022 where what has the next wave been? Speaking of mobile it was texting, right? So five years ago, seven years ago, um, texting emerged as a new possible channel. We've seen a bunch of companies and your peers, our colleagues dive into that. Um, But there has become, um, with all good channels, right? There's this initial wave of well, it's email, that's gonna allow us to do these things. And then it's mobile and then it's, you know, texting. Um, but I think what we've seen with, with texting from a regulatory perspective is right now there's a huge move towards opt-in texting and what that exactly means for annual giving. And so I think that it's too early to say, but we've heard from a bunch of you know folks, including some of your colleagues at Tufts, that just the, the shift around opt-in versus opt-out of texting is a little bit confusing right now. And so um, you know I think it always comes back down to you know, how do we earn it? How do we earn the right to solicit somebody? And, and, you know, how do we sort of weave in new technologies, but recognizing that if there isn't an underlying connection to the mission and the impact, it doesn't really matter what tool it is or what technology it is, which I think oftentimes is frankly lost on, um, on, on the sector who, you know, has a lot of pressure and is, push in on June 16th for donors and dollars. And so it's it's hard sometimes to balance the the volume, right? The velocity with the personalization that really 
inspires people to be a part of something. I mean, and I think that probably gets at the heart of it. I mean, we, we do have a tendency to just always want to talk about the channel, the technology itself, but it's not even about getting permission for the institution. It's like, you know, texting is a really powerful tool, but it's really only genuine and powerful when it's an individual talking to an individual. I mean, right. you, you, I would say the most intimate relationships that I have are the people that I text with. I'm very guarded about who's texting me. I would even say, you know, at the office running AGN, you know, if, if it's very urgent and you need to reach me, send me a text, but that's not like try to solve problems through text. Let's not get into a conversation through text. And I'm kind of protecting that. And I'm really cautious about who texts mm. me. So I, you know, I, and that's, that's not just texting. That's just sort of thinking about these channels in general. I can send, it's a big difference between me sending an email and making it look as personal as I can to a large number of people. It's very different about actually sending you, Brent, a very sincere, if I sit down and write you an email. Um, yeah, no, I, I think with any of these tools, it can be direct mail, it can be phone, it can be text, it can be email. They can be used really well yep. and they can be used really poorly. Yep. And I will say on a personal level, right, when I think about my texting inbox over the last several years and how polluted it has gotten, and candidly, even from an annual giving space, the number of you know, I have institutions where I hear from them one time a year via text and it's a giving day solicitation. There is so much potential to leverage text in a permission oriented manner to learn about me, to engage me, to qualify me, to do a discovery visit via text. If I want to engage that way, I don't see anybody leveraging it that way. It is mass broadcast day of giving year-end push, totally transactional. And so the same way that, you know, we can send a fairly, you know, generic email from Evertrue to our entire marketing base, or I can email you personally, like that experience for you is going to be very different. And it applies to every channel, direct mail, phone, text, you name it. And the rub and where you've built your career is just how do we scale personalization, recognizing that we just don't have enough time or resources to actually sit down and write a super thoughtful text to every single person out there. Or maybe we do. Well, and I think that's the balance. That's, you know, that's the strategy we're trying to come up with. Is it, it's not black and white. It's how do we optimize the personalization somewhere in between. You know, there's the very impersonal one institution to many communication that feels very impersonal because it's one size fits all. There's the highly personalized meeting like you and I are having right now. We're having a conversation. I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. Maybe there's other people peeking in on this that haven't, you know, don't have their video on, but we're just having a conversation. This is about as personal as it gets. I guess you could only trump this if, if you were standing right next to me here in my office, right. you know, but there's right. a whole spectrum. Of, of the personalization and it's, it's not black and white and it's not, that doesn't mean that one to many is bad. It doesn't mean that it's ineffective. So that is, you know, we use terms like scalability, but it is about really trying to, how personal can you get? How can you use all these tools? And that's the big change. If you want to get back to your question earlier, we had phone and mail in 1996. Now the toolkit is pretty vast. You know, I'm, I'm sort of a defender of the idea that the 
phone-a-thon is dead. It's, it's different. I think texting is going to sort of plop itself right in there as a great tool for one-to-many. Um, video becomes a big piece of that. Um, the phone call is a piece of it. Uh, email is a big piece of it. The, you know, the handwritten note, the letter, yep. and, you know, and using all the technology that we have at our disposal to personalize all those things. You know, I, yeah. um, we talked yeah. about your acquisition or your merger with Thank You. I mean, that's, yep. you know, that's really intriguing. And I think it sort of is a great example of how you can, per, you know, take some technology and find a way to be more personal. Doesn't make it completely personal, but it makes it better. No, and look, there are, I mean, thank you is an amazing example where you can send um, really powerful thank yous. Like it can be the cameo experience for education fundraising. We have schools where they set stewardship rules. You know, every donor above $10,000 will get a personalized thank you from the president. Not a generic, hey, thanks for your gift, but hey, Dan. I heard yesterday that you donated to XYZ initiative. I've been informed it was your 20th donate, you know, 20th year in a row of giving. I just want you know that I care, that I appreciate you. Thank you. You can't do that, right? Even with a scalable tool like thank you to every donor, but you can do it to more donors than you might have been able to 10 years ago. And then it's what are other tools and technologies where we can weave them together to create more personalized experiences for more people, recognizing that we'll never get to true one-on-one engagement for every single person, unless you know technology really changes, but, but that there can be progress and that we can weave these things together um, to create great experiences. Um, but you can also use the same exact tools to create like subpar experiences. And so that's the balance of, I think, even working in the technology space is how do you create the frameworks and the tools, encourage best practices, but ultimately it is up to advancement colleagues around the world to make decisions of, are we going to set up a stewardship rule so that the president is going to be sending one thank you a day to XYZ number of donors, or are we just going to use it to promote a giving day and that's it? And we're obviously pushing hard for more personalization whenever possible. Yeah, I, I, and that's probably where, um, you know, in terms of next big steps for this industry, I think it's we're, we're probably on the slow side in terms of adopting technologies, but we're probably at a point where, all right, that's we've now adopted a lot of these technologies or we're getting comfortable with them. Now's the time to get good at them. And to you know, figure out how do we really integrate these things into our strategies, as opposed to, and then I think that's probably been, and I, I'm a slow adopter. I'm I'm not like you, Brent. Probably you, I, you you strike me as like an early adopter. I I always kind of wait, you know. And the, the older that I'm getting here, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be a first mover. Um, I don't process information that quickly. Let me just sort of sit back and watch others do it. And okay, now it's my time, but I want to get really good at it, and I'll get really good. And that's probably where I think we are the next like five or ten years. We've got these technologies, we've got these tools, we've got a leadership, you know, one generation that's, we probably just got exacerbated with COVID that, you know, probably said, all right, this is the time I'm going to retire, maybe a little earlier than I was expecting, but the world has changed a lot. You know, a lot of people that, that you know, and I know, we probably know together that we're in that boat. They weren't, they weren't thinking about retirement, but then COVID came along and all the changes that came with that. And I think they said, I, I don't think 
I don't think I want to do this for another five or 10 years. I'm ready to just sort of slow down. So now you have this whole other more a younger, probably more comfortable with technology group of leadership that's stepping in and running advancement programs. And uh, so this will be exciting. There's a comfort level with technology. But again, it's not just how quickly can we adopt it. It's going to be how good can we get at using it to build the relationships. Really well said. And it gets back to the fundamentals. How do we build the relationships with this stuff? Really, really well said. Yeah, let's let's get really good at this stuff. I like that. Um, tell me about what inspired you to start the annual giving network. What is the annual giving network? And um, yeah, just what's the quick history? Yeah. So, um, I, I you know I, I mentioned that my my first job was in annual giving, and and uh, the next couple of jobs after that were in annual giving. I actually ended up spending about twenty years. Uh, in annual giving. Uh, American universities where it started. I went on, I actually worked in membership for a few years at National Geographic, which was terrific. Anytime you can be behind Jane Goodall and Bob Ballard at the salad bar line, you know, you've got it pretty good in, in your gig. I thought that was cool. Then uh, ran the annual giving program at Georgetown University, then moved up to Boston. And I got to be honest with you, Brent, at, at the time, I, I wouldn't say that I was really fulfilled in my work. Now I was in my twenties and early thirties. So, and I was your typical like job hopper. I'd be in a job for a couple of years. Um, I, you know, I'd be in a job for eight, 18 months and I'd already be looking for my next job. Right. You know, trying to find out. And I just wanted better title, wanted more money, wanted more staff reporting to me. And that was, that was sort of what was driving me. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't very fulfilled. And um, I, this is probably, 2000, probably 2006. And I said, you know what, I'm done. I had just, I was just finishing up my, I was going to graduate school too, getting, getting a, my MBA. I was done. I was going with the Boston college. I said, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of higher ed. I'm just not happy here. I'm not happy in annual giving. I'm going to do something else. Um, and I went to work for a student loan firm and I, collegiate funding resources. I, I highly doubt they're even around anymore. And I, I went and I tried that and it was a totally different world. It was basically the student loan. We were like re, repackaging, reselling student loan firms through like affinity marketing programs with like partnership organizations. And uh, I was on the job for like three weeks. I was miserable. And uh, the company got bought out by JP Morgan Chase and they eliminated my position. So, you know, lost my job. It was the first time that ever happened to me. And I was like, what am I going to do? My neighbor at the time, I remember I was in my backyard mm -hmm. I was raking leaves and uh, he had three girls, three young girls and his wife was pregnant. They just got back from the doctor and they found out they were going to have another girl. And I was like, oh, four girls. And he just smiled at me. He said, Dan, it's good to specialize. And at the, and I just, I remember at that moment, because I was really struggling, what am I going to do with my career? And I thought, here I am. I've worked at some really terrific organizations. I've learned from some great people, Mike Goodwin, Sean Scoville. Um, Brian Lee. I mean, these were people that I was working under at these universities. And um, I thought, I'm not taking, I'm not really like leaning into this. And my issue isn't, you know, my issue is that I really haven't tried to commit myself to this. And I said, from that point forward, I'm going to take this 15, 20 years of, at the time, it was 15 years of experience at annual giving. I want to be the best annual giving professional in the world. That's all I want to do. I just want to be the best at it started writing a blog, um, started a 
uh, at the time, LinkedIn, it was funny looking now, LinkedIn, I think has finally arrived, but at the time everybody was making fun of it because, you know, Facebook was the sexy thing and LinkedIn was clunky, but I started a group in LinkedIn and uh, invited all my friends to join it. And I realized I needed some content. So I started writing a blog and I said, you know, my people are annual giving people. So I'm just going to start writing a blog and offering advice and featuring ideas that I'm seeing out there in the industry. And that's what eventually early on, it actually started as something else. And we kind of had to put that to bed, but eventually that is what sort of blossomed into annual giving network. Um, a couple of years later, when I went to work at Boston university, the first thing that I did when I got there, there's a group called the annual giving directors consortium. Are you familiar with this group? Yes. So it's a very prestigious group of annual giving directors. Many, many good friends are members of this group, but it is essentially, and it's very exclusive print, you know, it's like a country club and they only let in, I don't know if this is accurate today, but at the time it was only like the 40 members at a time, the annual giving directors from these schools. And they were very prestigious schools. And the only way you could get in is if, a, if, if somebody left. Well, they had a couple openings and I was like, great. I had just arrived at Boston University. I was running their annual giving program. First thing I wanted to do was to get them a membership. So I applied. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a letter back. Now, my name is Dan Allenby, but the letter was, it said, Dear Dave, um, we're sorry to inform you that your request for membership in the Annual Giving Directors Consortium has been declined, but we hope you'll keep us in mind for the future. And I thought, well, that sucks. Uh, and at that moment, I said, I'm going to go start my own and I'm going to do it for the other 4,950 annual giving programs that are out there that don't have an AGDC, that's the Annual Giving Directors Consortium. Now, that story isn't meant to knock AGDC, I think very highly of it. it's a terrific organization, great people running it. But that is what Annual Giving Network is. I mean, it's really, and what, what the Annual Giving Directors Consortium does, they get together a couple of times a year, they share best practices, they share ideas. And so that's what we're trying to do with Annual Giving Network. Uh, AGN is a platform, it's a network. Um, I wouldn't say it's limited to people who work in annual giving, but that is our focus. You know, uh, we're trying to, we are trying to service, and I, I believe that's probably an underinvested part of advancement. And that was part of it too, is that, hey, here's an area, everybody's focused on major gifts. Everybody's focused on campaigns. That's where all the investment is going. Um, and what that means is you got a, an underserved segment here, a relatively um, young that's i think of myself when i started working annual giving if you go into any annual giving shop you're going to see probably a pretty high head count of pretty new people that don't make nearly as much as major gift officers but they're hungry to learn um they think they know everything but they don't know anything and that's agn probably serves that function too we're not only connecting people so they can learn and share best practices but we're providing a, a, a training and professional development services so we do a lot of webinars workshops we're trying to leverage technology to do that. Um, and we've, you know, we've serviced thousands. I, I'm proud to say probably 3,000, 3,500 different colleges and universities that are participating. We've got an active membership program. Uh, I've got over 700 institutions that have participated in that. Um, and we're growing, you know, but we're, we're focused. We want, we want to be the best resource for annual giving programs in the world. We're very focused on education, colleges, universities, independent schools. Um, you know, I think very highly of, you know, all the different nonprofits are out there, but probably a little bit like you guys, maybe Brent, I know we've talked about that's sort of our focus for right now is, is uh, educational institution. Yeah. That's and I love it. Great background. And uh, what, a, you know, every entrepreneurial journey has that 
moment. It sounds like the combination of specialization by way of your neighbor, uh, plus, um, that rejection letter. And you know, that, that, what if you had gotten accepted to AGDC? I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, rejection can be a powerful motivator. So, so uh, that being said, I feel like you've got a couple of the AGDC people now sort of involved with uh, AGN, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, we got we call them faculty. So we, you know, we're, okay. we're always looking for, hey, who's who are the thought leaders out there? Who who are the practitioners that are doing really good work at their own institutions? And those so, are who the- are some of the faculty that you've um, really enjoyed working with over oh, the years? Gosh. I want to call like individual people out. I mean, we've got um, Melinda Phillips at, at Vanderbilt is right. Addition to the team, she's you know absolutely terrific. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my friend Meredith Johnson, who actually now has moved outside of annual giving. She's out at, at Scripps. She's our longest running uh, faculty member. We've got Gloria Gooseby at uh, Furman uh, in South Carolina. Um, these are just a few of our senior faculty members. We've had, I would say, over 150 people teach our webinars and our workshops. You know, over the years, it's hard to believe we've been doing this for you know close to a decade. Um, but we're all, you know, our, our, our faculty are a huge piece of what we do that kind of allows us to be scalable. You know, I, early on when AGN actually started the real, the, the sort of the, the follow-up story to the rejection letter was we, I started doing a lot of market research, trying to get a, get my finger on the pulse of what was going on in the annual giving industry. So this is 2013. I sent, uh, we had this LinkedIn group. We probably had a thousand people in the group. And I, I created a survey in SurveyMonkey, posted it in the group and got a lot of people to fill it out. And I was just, I was asking questions about what they're doing at their annual giving programs. Uh, took the data that we got back. I wrote a report and I said, you know what? I, I want to share this report. Let me try to share it as a webinar. And so I, I didn't know anything. Again, I'm, a, I'm not an early adopter of technology. So now we're going 2013. I, I think I spent 500 bucks. I licensed GoToWebinar um and put together a powerpoint presentation and shared the results of the survey and i just posted i said hey free webinar and i posted it in our linkedin group and i got like 700 people to register for it and i was like and so i did the webinar i was awful i mean it was terrible and i said all right i just learned two things one i never want to do another webinar as long as i live and uh three things two is i was not really prepared to do that webinar um, and three is there's an audience out there. Like people need this stuff. People are, people are looking for help and guidance running their annual giving programs. And so then I, I sort of built on that and I started recruiting others to teach and trying to make sure not just that we were recruiting them. I was doing a lot of teaching for case at the time, but what can we do to prepare them? Cause AGN is not just, we don't do webinars where, Hey, just show up. Uh, we, you know, we go to great lengths to make sure that the content is really good. Um, and that, the, the presenters are prepared and that they're doing good research. And, you know, that's not a little thing, you know, I'm not, I'm not, we're, AGN isn't, we don't have a product that we're selling in terms of like, you might think of a tangible product or even a software product. Um, you know, we're trying to sell training and access to best practices. So that's sort of where we put our energies. And look, you've got a, a business model that is strikingly similar to the annual fund, which is an accessible membership fee. How do you measure that? I'm sure it is member count, new members, member retention. There's probably some upgrade opportunities for premium, you know, experiences or maybe not, but I, I, you know, it really, I'm sure in running 
that organization, you, you've got to practice everything it is that you are trying to preach because building that sort of grassroots membership driven community yeah. um, is frankly harder, I think, than building an annual fund because at least with an annual fund, you've got a constituency, you know, a history, you know, historical engagement and reunions and all this other just brand affinity. You had none of that when you started AGN. Yeah. So now, now fortunately, early on, I didn't start it. It wasn't like I, you know, I quit my day job and said, you know, right. it was the side, it was a side hustle before side hustles were a thing. Hustle. It was, uh, you know, it was something that I was, wasn't, wasn't trying to do anything more than help people in, you know, who had, who I could relate to, who had worked in annual giving, who maybe weren't feeling very fulfilled. Part of it was I wasn't feeling very fulfilled early on. And I just think it was a lot of times because people were kind of talking down to the annual fund, you know, like the, it, I realize this isn't true now, but at the time there was a lot of, well, the major gift officers think they're better than us. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's true, but it, it can sometimes feel that way. And, uh, and so I wanted to be a little bit of an advocate in a way. It's like, Hey guys, this is actually really cool stuff. You know, annual giving isn't, uh, this is the place to be. It's, it's actually kind of sexy and fun. I mean, this is marketing. This is, we get to run campaigns. Now we've got giving days. Now we've got all this technology that makes it just so fun. You know, we got video, we got you know, our own marketing campaigns and giving days and crowdfunding and texting. And I think people appreciate that. But at the time, I, I think it, it, it needed a little bit of a shot in the arm. And so that was, you know, also something we were trying to do too. It's like, you know, hey guys, pick your head up. This is, you're in a good spot. You can make a career. We actually, that was another thing that one of the things I'm really excited about. We do a lot of uh, market research around like salary and compensation. And early on, we started doing salary surveys. As a matter of fact, in just, in just a couple of weeks, we have our latest salary survey coming out that we're really excited about. Now we do salaries. We're, we're, we've got a report coming out of 2000 different advancement professionals, and it's going to show salary benchmarks across the industry, not just annual giving, major gifts communications, plan giving, alumni relations, annual giving. But what we're really looking forward to seeing is we did a survey two years ago. So we're going to be looking at the change in salary over the past two years. Because as you know, a lot, a lot has changed and everybody's curious. We're seeing this mass exodus right now, big time of uh, people leaving higher ed advancement. They're going to work for tech companies. They're going to work for companies that are a little more willing to be flexible about remote work. And there's a problem right now. I mean, right now in, in advancement, trying to keep and retain people. So we want to look, you know, part of that is just culture. Part of that is about opportunities, but part of it's compensation too. And we want to see our advancement programs really keeping up with, um, with compensation. We're looking at eight or 9% inflation right now, Brent. And if, you know, if the salaries haven't changed in two years, you know, people are staying in their jobs or just losing money. So, well, I got to ask, you, you said you're going to release this in a couple of weeks? We are. This episode will be released after that. So give me a sneak peek. I promise none of the, uh, none of the insights will leak. Let's, let's just wait a couple of weeks. How about all that? right. All right. You want to know like what the, you know, are they keeping up? Is I'm just curious to know, you know, by the time this episode drops, the survey will be out. We, where can people find it who are listening and yep. what is an insider too that you might be comfortable um, sharing even in advance of it um, being published? Sure. So uh, you can find it at annualgivingnetwork.com 
you know, that's, that's our website. That's the easiest place to find everything that we've got, whether it's professional development you're looking for, if you're interested in becoming a member, if you want to upgrade your membership to one of these new levels, we've got some exciting new levels for organizations that might have additional needs um, around, you know, recruiting or professional development or things like that. Um, I think one of the big takeaways, and this isn't directly related to salary, but it's just what people are looking for. Um, and I was really struck by it is what a priority remote work is for advancement professionals. They want it as much as they want compensation. And as a matter of fact, there was actually some data in our report that's gonna show that some people actually prioritize the ability to do remote work over compensation. And, and that doesn't surprise me. Um, we're, we actually, AGN is not a search firm. Um, we do, we've got a very active job board. It's one of the things where we post positions across the industry, but 80% of them are probably annual giving jobs, but they're jobs from across advancement. Um, you can find that on our website too. But, you know, when we were probably posting, I don't know, on average 50 jobs a month that people would come and they'd post them on our website, just like cases job board or higher ed jobs or something like that. When the pandemic hit, it flatlined like nothing. All of a sudden jobs just, they, there was no hiring. There were budget freezes, salary, you know, hiring freezes. And then in the fall of 2020, it started to tick back up. Well, right now it is like overloaded. Our job board is so filled with jobs because institutions can't hire people. So as part of our research, we're asking people, well, what do you want? You know, one, we're trying to figure out what, what people are making so that we can help benchmark. I mean, this is for individuals that want to make their next career move. It's also for advancement shops. Like, if, you know, are we paying people enough to retain them? Um, and so, but I think the, the need for the interest in flexibility and remote work uh, is, is one of the things that really stands out. You know, it's, it's as important, arguably more important to many advanced professionals than even, you know, what they're making in terms of salary. Is that the kind of thing you're looking for? Really well said, Dan, I'm looking forward to the survey and if there are things we can do, um, at Evertrue to help yeah. showcase the work, you know, maybe there's something that we can think about on that, on that front. Yeah, um, because, you know, and, and certainly we've been, champions of remote work in the sector. Uh, I think I've probably frustrated some leaders out there. So I'm trying to balance uh, putting out a point of view without, you know, upsetting people too much. But I, I, I'm just with you. I just don't see, um, especially in work like annual giving, there's just, um, I think, less and less of a reason why we shouldn't be able to create great remote and hybrid experiences. And that's happening. And, and it's just, um, there are institutional issues, friction, inertia, but ultimately, um, talent, talent will, will govern this, um, more than anything. And, and I think surveys like yours will, will, um, help support maybe some of the tough, um, leadership changes that need to be advocated for because higher education, especially residential four-year higher education is so focused on the physical experience. And I am a believer of the transformational aspects of being on a campus and, living in that community, but there is one office on campus whose constituency is not on campus, and that is advancement. And the fact that advancement is oftentimes governed by the same remote work rules as the rest of campus makes absolutely no sense And uh, to me. Uh, and so I, I hope that we can continue to make progress so that we can fight uh, for talent in this sector. No, I, I'm, I personally am very curious about it. I mean, even from an AGN standpoint, I mean, we're, we're a small business. We've got, you know, 
a, a small team, a small staff. And I will tell you when I started it and it started to grow, I just thought, well, if, you know, as we grow as a business, we will, we will need a physical office where employees come in and there'll be a receptionist because that's just what companies do. Right. I mean, isn't that, that sort of validates your existence as a, as a business. And, um, and I thought a lot about that because we, we were virtual to begin with, you know, cause I started as a side hustle and then we were doing webinars. I mean, I don't, I'll say it again. I don't think of myself as a first mover or, you know, particularly, you know, a first adopter on technology. That's not a strength of mine, you know, naturally. Um, but we, we were, we were doing webinars. We were using technology to do the things that we were, we weren't doing live in-person conferences or workshops. That wasn't what we did. So we were sort of naturally set up as a virtual company, even though I didn't, I don't think I ever would have described us that way. We had employees in, you know, four or five different States around the country, but not deliberately just because those are the people that we found because we didn't actually have a physical office. And then the pandemic hit and it all changed. And then I said, well, yeah, I, now I don't think we, it's not even a matter of should we be, you know, it's like, what's going to be the best model for us. So we're, we're very much a virtual company. And now I'm more committed to figuring out not should we be virtual or not, but you know, in the, to the extent that we're virtual, how can we be a highly functioning virtual company? And I don't know how that's going for you, Brent, but you know, it's, it, I, I think a lot about it. I mean, I think a lot about how do we motivate employees? Cause it's not, uh, I know Elon Musk got everybody kind of worked up a couple of weeks ago where he said, you know, if you don't want to come yeah. in on Monday, then go pretend to work somewhere else. Right. I kind of appreciate where he's coming from, um, you know, but it's, it's interesting. I don't know. What do you, th- I mean, what's the, what's the well, secret to like running I, a virtual company? I think it means that we just all have to be much more disciplined about alignment around goals, alignment around core initiatives. And then as much as possible, trying to break down those core initiatives into near-term measurables. You know, for example, oftentimes in the annual giving world, we will talk about donors, dollars, participation rate. Well, what leads to donors and dollars and participation rate? What are the activities that can be executed throughout the course of the year that are going to be the difference maker between beating our retention rate or not hitting the retention rate, breaking it down so that we're not just talking about dollars and donors in the abstract, but um, on a daily basis, how are we performing relative to last year at this time? On a daily basis, how are we performing relative to the industry, which is an area that Evertrue is investing in heavily right now, those shared insights. And then based on all of the data at our disposal, what are the leading indicators that are then going to drive the outcomes that we're actually working on. And I think that um, that is the way that we should all run businesses, no matter where they are, uh, in person or not. But I think that when you are um, in a remote environment, the bar is just that much higher because you can't do management by walking around, peeking over the desk, you know, dropping in to sort of see how that thing is going. It's got to be more trust, alignment, clear measurables. But if you can get those things in place, then you have the opportunity to find a national or global talent pool that has the best alignment of skills and mission and interest in the work. That is super powerful. We've got a new colleague 
who is in Omaha, Nebraska, worked at Creighton University's annual fund. His name is Mason Harmon. He has come to the team with great um, industry knowledge, learning how to work in a business development capacity. And Mason is the kind of person that three years ago before the pandemic, we likely never would have considered hiring because we don't have an office in Omaha. We don't have a team in Omaha. We're not based in Omaha. And seeing somebody with skills, mission alignment, tenacity, a willingness to learn with clear measurables so we know how Mason's doing has really been one of the examples that I cite in justifying my belief and passion for the future of remote work. Well said. So we've got a couple minutes left. Yeah. Uh, you're active on LinkedIn. You've got a, a, a great community. I'm sure a lot of folks listening are going to go chase down that salary survey. Um, but if, if uh, people want to get in touch, Dan, how do you recommend they do that? Well, if uh, again, our website is got a lot of resources. It sort of explains what we do, annualgivingnetwork.com. Um, I'm always happy. I always love connecting with people. So, you know, if people are out there and they want to connect, they want to understand more about AGN, they've got, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in listening. You know, I'm, I'm very curious to hear what it is that's keeping people up at night, whether they work in annual giving, whether they're running their own, you know, company like you. Uh, I just, I just love, you know, finding out what is it that's on people's mind, what's bothering them. Um, that inevitably leads to some really interesting ideas. I'm always interested in the ideas. Um, so, you know, I would encourage people to reach out to me or, or just, or just, you know, plug in, you know, read, read our blog, uh, watch our webinars, participate in one of our workshops, uh, yeah, check out our salary survey. Um, we've got a lot, we've got a lot coming. We've got, you know, a lot of, a lot of new enhanced benefits for, for our members, we have a new um, certification program, actually, for I'm thinking of this with managers in mind, but there's so much turnover in annual giving. Um, we're, we have a uh, uh, annual giving certification program we're going to launch this fall where you could have your staff go through it. And we will make sure that they get the sort of a fundamental understanding of the nuts and bolts of best practices in annual giving and, and fundraising as a whole. Um, so, we, you know, from an AGN standpoint, annual giving network, we're we got a lot of exciting stuff and I'm excited about the future. I don't know exactly where we're going. I do think the next five or 10 years are going to be interesting. Uh, you know, we've gotten through this pandemic. The economy is sort of held together. I think, you know, we've got, we've got some challenging times ahead. Um, I'm not an economist, but you know, this inflation stuff is something to pay attention to. Um, but it's an interesting time. And I think it's a very exciting time. And I, I keep coming back to education. This is really why, education is so important because we've got, yeah. we've got a lot of problems to solve. You know, the world is heading, I think, in a relatively good direction. Um, and I'm excited to be part of it. Dan, I, uh, I share that sentiment. I really appreciate everything you've done. Um, I love your entrepreneurial journey and look forward to continuing to get to know you. And maybe there's ways we can collaborate in the future. But for today, I just want to thank you for sharing your perspective. Encourage everybody to reach out to Dan, follow AGN on LinkedIn, check out the salary survey, uh, and thanks for coming on this uh, journey with us from Cybunt and Liebunt, uh punch cards to, uh, to where we are today, where we're going. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Good stuff. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And yeah, let's, let's continue the conversation. I'm looking forward to it, Brent. Take care, everybody. 